Okay, ready? Take what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in we are. I want to know something she's I'll think about everyone you need. I'm holding it, things are rooting real now. I have a senior warning you. Hey. The tour ratio. Okay, though. The tour ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> what are some of the technical keys that make your forehand so so huge and so effective? Uh, for me, I think my, my biggest thing is just making sure I'm making contact with my arm as straight as possible. It's a, it's a bit of a common theme you'll find among some of the best forms in the world, ranging from Federer to uh, Nadal to Del Potro. There are a lot of times when they're making contact with the ball in front, their arm is completely straight. To me, I think that gives a little bit of easier power. Now, it seems a bit... To teach it to somebody who's never done it, it's it's a bit unorthodox. You seem to go, there's no way I'm really going to be hitting the ball like this. But as you go on in time and time, and I think I started it when I was about 14, 15, and I had to kind of just change my forehand altogether for maybe about six months. And it felt so uncomfortable. I'm like, my arm is so straight. I feel like I can't really do anything. I don't have any control. But once you get used to it, making contact there, the power just becomes so much easier to generate. And then you get good with redirecting and changing direction and, and doing whatever kind of making the ball do what you want it to do. So my biggest, the only thing that I think about on my forehand, a lot of times is making contact with my arm as completely straight as possible. And then after that, everything else just kind of takes care of itself. Chris Eubanks is the 150th best tennis player in the world. He's six foot seven with a monster serve and a gigantic forehand. And I have loved watching him rise up through the ranks. And I am rooting for him every time he takes the court And it was an honor to get on the phone with him and talk tennis. You know how much I love tennis. So we're going to go deep into serves, into forehands, into backhands, into the minutiae of being a professional tennis player, because that's what I'm dying to hear about. So let's go. It's my man, Chris Eubanks on Torre Show. I've heard from some folks that you win a tournament and because it's a singular sport and because it's a basically a 52-week schedule, you don't really have time to celebrate. You kind of got to just go on to the next. You got to move on to the next. Tennis is a sport in which typically most times you go lose every single week. Every single week you you play, you're probably going to lose. Chances are unless you're one of the top three, four players in the world. Like, so you just got to know, like, even when you win, there's a tournament the next week, you got to be able to come down from that high and say, all right, I got to be just as hungry as I was last week, this week, which can be a bit tough. But you, the longer, at least for me, the longer I've been on tour, the more I'm like, getting accustomed to it. This is only my, my third title winning, but it's still third challenger title. I've won a couple lower ones, but it, it's still, uh, you're still trying to figure it out. You need, I don't think you really have it completely mastered until you, really been out there for a while so what does losing a lot at this high level do to your game and your psyche does it make you sharper uh 
sharper. I'm not sure. I think it always it, it, it constantly just makes you look to to be a little bit better. So when you know, in essence, you're probably going to lose at some point every single week, you can just go back, reevaluate those losses and say, all right, this is what my opponents are probably going to be doing. They saw me lose playing a guy who played this style or a girl who played this style. Let me try to sure up my game so I don't lose like that again. Let me let me let me sure up these holes in my game because otherwise everyone has video. Once it starts words gets out there that oh he doesn't like this shot, players are gonna start playing you with that shot. So you gotta be able to kind of take the good from the weekend as well as the bad and be able to kind of hopefully progress to just being a better player the next week and the next week and the next week. And and it can it can be a bit tough. A lot of times in tennis, <clears throat> a lot of the players out here were the best. When they were young, they were the best in wherever they're from. It doesn't matter if they're from Spain, France, Portugal, you know, Florida. Texas. It doesn't matter. In Florida, you can be all over the world. A lot of times players were the best, so they're not accustomed to the amount of losing that comes. When you get out here, you're typically going to lose, like I say, every single week. So it, it can be a bit of a culture shock in the beginning, but then you kind of grow accustomed. You learn to say, all right. This was a good week. I know I lost earlier than I wanted to, but this was a good week. I put together, you know, two or three good wins. Now I can build on that and do that again next week. Or maybe you play a rough match and you lose first round, but you played a good match. You say, all right, I can take positives from this and move on and hopefully be better. So it's just a lot of learning, man. It's a lot of taking notes and, and, and taking inventory of yourself and, and making sure you're mentally still there. I know for me, when I get to uh, go to the U.S. Open or something like that, and you sit real close, you know, you know, in the outer courts, and you see the pace of the ball seems way faster on television, and you maybe get a little bit of sense of the weight of the ball is not really perceivable on television. Yeah. Um, can you talk about just some of your reflections from being on the court about how the game at the 150 level is different than it might have been when you're in college or in the juniors? So the, the interesting thing about college in particular is once you get to a certain level in tennis, and I say college and high-level college is definitely that level, a lot of high-level college players can play similar shots as a lot of good pros. Like they can play the same shot, the same weight of shot. They can generate it. They can put you in a lot of the you know same positions and uncomfortable places on the court. What, what makes the pros a little bit better is they can do it more consistently. And they know how to do it under pressure. A lot of times you can play a college. You, in, anytime, if you ever check out a, a draw or a tournament next time you go to the U.S. Open, maybe take notice of like, you know, who some maybe the lower ranked guys that are in the draw, like the wild cards might be. You'll find a lot of times in tournaments, you'll see a wild card who might be, you know, a 17 or 18 year old junior who's very good. And they're giving them a shot to play in the, the, the you know, the big tournament. They'll get out there and they'll be able to compete for a set. A lot of times, or they'll play some sets close. They'll be a 6-4, 7-5, 7-6, maybe even win a set. But it's about pros can say, all right, I'm going to make this player do it a whole nother time. And usually that's when pros can kind of separate themselves and say, I do this for a living and, and I'm accustomed to this level and sustaining it for a long time. Whereas a junior or a college guy, it's a bit of a culture shock in the beginning for them to be able to sustain such a high level for a long time. But in terms of like, there are college guys that serve just as big as I do. There, there's the there's Not a kid now at the University of Florida who plays, ironically enough, for his dad. His dad's name is Brian Shelton. The kid's name is Ben Shelton. Brian was a pro. Yeah. Brian was about 50 in the world. Yeah. Actually played at Georgia Tech. Um, and his son, Ben, 
is about actually went to school early. He clinched his father's first national championship on the men's side uh, wow. this past year. But Ben is about six four. He's a lefty, and I'll sit and I've watched Ben play on on uh, TV and the computer, and I watch. I go, man, this kid is good. This kid is good. And then I got to sit courtside at one of his matches, and I go, Ben is serving bigger than I do, no doubt. Ben is popping 135, 136, lefty, good spin and everything. But you can kind of see Ben just now figuring it out. And he's going to be one of the best players in college, no doubt in my mind. He's figuring out how to sustain that high level of a long time. In the U.S. Open, he pushed a guy who ended up making quarterfinals, Valtic Van, Van Schulp. He played him second round, uh, I believe, second round qualifying and had the guy on the brink. The guy ends up qualifying in and then quarterfinals. Ben was able to compete with that guy right there. The guy which is barely able to edge him. Now, uh, Van der Zandschulp, I think, is like 60 in the world. And Ben is preparing for his sophomore year of college. So it just goes to show the levels aren't that different. We see this pattern that you're talking about a lot, especially like a Djokovic, you know, maybe a Federer will lose the first set. And then they just sort of seem to go into a cruise control and the other guy falls off. And you see that pattern all the time, especially if they're playing somebody who they're not used to seeing that much. We right. went to see, um, I think, uh, Jacoby, what's his name? The the California, the new guy, the, the California kid. Um, the, the, the He's got two hands. Uh, I'll find his name. Jacoby Brissett or something like that. Oh, uh, Jacoby. You know what I think? Jacoby Brissett, the NFL player? No, 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 no. He's got, he's got a weird, he's got a weird, Brooksby. Brooks, oh, Jensen Brooksby. Brooksby. Yeah, Brooksby's a Jensen Brooksby's Brooksby, there you yeah, my God. He sounds like a John Hughes name, <laughs> Jensen Brooksby. Yeah, Brooksby, he, um, you know, Brooksby's a different level, man. He is, but he took the first set from Djokovic. Um, it looked like he was doing his thing, and then it all just... And, 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 he, ha- and he held tight in the second set. There were a couple mm-hmm. of long, like 20... There were two 20-minute games where it seemed that it was all teetering in the balance. And then next thing you know, Djokovic just ran away with the last two and a half sets. Right. So that's just like the younger player is, is unable to mentally sustain the level. Um, Brooksby's case, I think is a little different because from, I believe I'm not hundred percent sure, but I do believe that he was battling some type of injury during the match. But, but in general, mm. when you see matches like that, that typically is what happens. You'll have, Novak, when you see what happens is the players are playing so close and all of a sudden the big name guy or or or, or woman, they'll just kind of just uh, just start sliding away and it feels as though the other player, their level is just dropping. What happens is the player, the player or the, the higher ranked player is kind of just maintaining that level. They're not doing anything different. They're not in occasion. You'll find some where they up their level, but a lot of times they're maintaining it. And then what happens is it's very, very tough for the lower rank guys, even the younger guys like myself to be able to sustain that for an extended period of time. And what happens is in tennis, because like you say, it, it tennis is a sport pretty much is about holding serve. If you're able to hold serve, you can kind of stay close. Now what happens is when mental fatigue starts to get in play along with physical fatigue, you could have one service game where you maybe double fall. You miss a routine ball that you don't normally miss that you hadn't missed for the other set and a half. You give a guy like Novak two free points he gets the break. He holds that set. Next thing you know, he's breaking early in the second, and then it just goes from there. So that's kind of the hard thing is about keeping that focus to say, I'm not going to give anything free. I'm going to stay as locked in as possible because I know if I give an inch, his level is so high. 
he's he's going to be able to just kind of crack that door open and then just boom. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I want to um, talk about your game a little bit and then double back to some of the things you were talking about around thinking. But like you have one of the more extraordinary serves in the game. Um, can you talk about some of the some of the just the keys that you are trying to hit? Um, you know, some of the technical points that you're trying to hit on that makes your serve so powerful and effective. Uh, okay, I don't I don't think there's any way around uh, acknowledging the fact that being tall helps. Um, but entering college. The college coach at Georgia Tech, Kenny Thornton, had a really big point in saying, we're going to make your serve is going to be your weapon. Your serve is going to be, you know, why you're going to be winning matches. And at the time, I my favorite shot was my forehand. I loved hitting my forehand. I still love hitting my forehand to this day. But I kind of noticed the trend. I said, matches in which I hit my serve well, I don't really lose. If I'm not serving well, but I'm hitting my forehand well, I've seen matches in which I could lose those. So there was a a strong correlation between if I serve well, I tend to win matches. And we just kind of made it a point to say, you know what, we're going to naturally the the pace on my serve is going to get bigger, stronger I get. Uh, But we want to make sure that I can balance the spots. I can hit spots, you know, I can be very accurate with, you know, where I'm trying to go with my serve and also adding a lot of variety in there where I can put, uh, different spins on it that would kind of leave my opponent guessing you know is he going to go big t or is he going to go kick wide that might hit and bounce over my head or is he going to go slider t you know just kind of giving myself more options the fact that that way i can serve smart as opposed to always feeling as though i have to serve better and putting it this far from the line at you know 130 miles an hour so that's kind of been the big thing it's just increasing variety and then making sure my i'm as accurate as possible i mean i know for me um one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is really getting a strong, fast wrist snap at contact. Right. And that more than moving your arm or your shoulder really fast, that will give you pace. Yeah. Um, are, are there, I mean, like, yeah, you're tall, but like, you know, are there little technical things like that that like help you get the most out of your body? So for me, I think one of the big things is I, I tend to try to catch my toss before it really – I don't want to toss it too high where the ball goes up, loses momentum, and then comes back down, 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 and then I'm hitting it. I want to catch it near the top of the toss, like near the top of its rise on the toss. Maybe it comes down a little bit. And I also, like you say, want to get a good wrist snap at the end, a, a good amount of pronation in there allows me to not only generate pace but also use my height to generate even more angle. So if I want to go, if I'm in the ad side and I want to go flat wide, you can do it pretty well without, you know, exaggerating the pronation. But when I'm able to really cock the wrist and snap the wrist at the top, I find I can make it land shorter in the box with a little bit more pace, if that makes sense. So those two things, making sure I'm catching the toss near the top of it, as well as making sure I'm having a good wrist snap at the end, usually results in me serving pretty well. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door 
thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. So, I mean, the kick serve is one of the most important things, one of the hardest things, I think, in the game to learn for a lot of people. Right. What, like, if you were trying to teach somebody, what are some of the keys to really getting the kick serve to be as good as it could be? Um, so for me, I think the big thing is, is learning how to brush directionally on the ball. So a lot of coaches will say, you look at it, look at a ball like a clock. When I'm hitting my kick serve, I'm usually hitting it from seven o'clock to about one or two o'clock right in there and getting comfortable for me, which is important. And a lot of guys, this is a, you know, up for uh, discussion and different people have different opinions on it. But for me, I try to get the toss a little bit further behind. So I might have a little bit of arch in my back. Now, a lot of the best servers in the world have been able to kind of make their serve so potent is because they can do everything on one toss. They can talk. Uh, Sanford was an example. Federer is an example. They can toss the ball in the same spot and go kick, slice, flat. It's extremely difficult. I find my kick is more effective when I do throw it behind me a little bit, arch the back, and brush up from about 7 o'clock to about 1 o'clock, maybe even I can go in between 7 and 8 until 1 and 2 and just getting a little bit of spin that way. So hopefully for me, when the, as a righty, when the ball hits the ground, it's bouncing back to my right and away from my opponent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you, I mean, what gives you 
the confidence, like, you know, when you get to, you know, 30, 40 or add out second serve, you know, late in the set, what are you saying to yourself to make sure that you go into that moment with confidence and not, I mean, just the least bit of doubt in that moment could make you miss. Yeah, hundred percent. It, it, it's, you know, I've tried various different methods and how and best ways to prepare for, you know, those, those situations. For me, what I do is I, I try to make sure I do a good job of, of hitting enough serves in practice and hitting buckets and buckets of serves, hitting all the serves and then what I tell myself when I get to that moment as I'm bouncing the ball or I'm even walking up to the baseline, I go, you're a server. This is why th- these points are why you hit the buckets and buckets of serves at practice for, for this point right here. You put in the work and then you just trust it. And leading up to the, you know, maybe me bouncing the ball, this is what I'll be kind of telling myself. The moment I finish bouncing my ball, I make my mind go completely blank. I don't want to really be thinking anything too technical. I don't want to be thinking anything about the other the opponent I just kind of tell myself almost like a little bit of a pep talk I say all right these situations are or you know it's what you live for you live for these opportunities to be able to serve out uh, sets or even you know come up with good serves down break point or set point and, and this is what you're here for and as I'm bouncing the ball when I finish the last bounce my mind goes completely blank and I just pretty much just try to rely on muscle memory so wait tell me a little bit more about in because because what you think in between the points is so important and just right. settles you and you know I know sometimes even like getting a lead and you might be like oh I got him and like just that little bit of relaxation somewhere in your spirit and next thing you know you know he's he's all on top of you and you're like damn I was, I was killing him and I thought they were, I had him you know I mean right. like. So the little things that you think really make an effect. So what are you trying to think about in between the points? For me, it, it depends on the situation, depends on the score, depends on the opponent. Um, for me, because of my game style, my game style is pretty simple. It, it, there isn't, isn't too much, you know, too many complexities in my game. I want to serve well. I want to hit my spot. When I get on balance, I want to take a cut out of forehand, and I hopefully want to look to transition and get into net, keep the points quick, make the other guy feel uncomfortable and make the guy feel like I'm on top of it. So a lot of it depends on the score. There are many times in which, you know, because my style is so aggressive, I might make an error being aggressive. And then I tell myself, knee-jerk reaction after a miss, it's like, why would you do that? Why would you go for that shot? That makes no sense. Just play another shot. Be a little bit more conservative. But usually after a few seconds after that, I kind of can tell myself, you know, what's best for me and what I need to be doing. And I can kind of go back to, no, you know what? Second thought, that was the right thing. You did the right thing. You just didn't execute. I can live with not executing. I, I don't like to play points in which maybe I'm, I'm back behind the baseline grinding or pushing and because I know that's not me. In those instances in which I get caught in those situations and I lose the point, then I might find myself a bit harsher on myself just because I go, that's not how you're supposed to play. You're supposed to play a different style. Be committed to how you're supposed to play and just be willing to live with the result. It's kind of how it goes. But a lot of times... The, the, the thoughts that go through a tennis player's mind on the court can range from what the next point is going to be to what flight are they taking home if they lose. I've played many matches. I played a match actually here in Indian Wells this year, last round qualifying against another American, Stefan Kozlov, and he broke me at four all in the third. Serving for, he's getting ready to serve for the match at 5-4. The entire changeover, 
I'm sitting there thinking, I go, okay, so it's about 11.30, 12. I could, if I get back to the hotel after this, I could probably pack and be on a flight back to Atlanta. These are things that I'm thinking while I'm getting water on a changeover. I'm like, I could be back in Atlanta probably around, let's see, it's three hours behind. If I can find a flight that's four, I could land at maybe eight and I could be in my bed tonight. And then by the time the ref calls time, you walk to the baseline, you get ready to play. Then you kind of dial back in and say, all right, that's, let me try to focus in on getting this break back. But the, 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 the amount of the range, the spectrum of what my thoughts go to while I'm on the tennis court, it's, it's pretty wide. So it, it can span from, like I said, what this strategy is going to be to what was that place I had for dinner three nights ago? Why can't I remember it? That's weird. I had it three nights ago. I still can't remember what I ate three days ago. That's in the middle of a match. It's just, it's just you know, it's kind of how it goes sometimes. It's amazing that you you still are sort of struggling with the internal voice of like, let's stay focused. Let's be right yeah. here. I know yeah. if I started thinking about how to get home after the match, I, that would be done. I wouldn't be able to yeah. dial back in and play a good game after that. Yeah. So some of it, I also, it could be just a, it, in tennis, as you know, it's, it's an individual sport and you don't really have anyone to talk to. So you have those voices going on in your head and, and, and you can look at it as, you know, three or four different people. You could have one person saying, Hey, you're going to fight. You're going to come back. You can win this match. When you can have one person, another person in your head saying, man, we're about to get out of here. We're going to go to our favorite restaurant tonight. You're going to be back in Atlanta. You're going to go hang out with friends tomorrow. You know, there, there's, there's, so there's so many different things that you got to kind of fight them all and figure out, all right, this is a big point. Who am I going to listen to now? So it's, it's I, a very I unique. Feel like I, I can't talk to anyone I, else on the court, so I might as well talk to four versions of myself. I definitely feel like I have, like, a, a, a child inside me in those moments um, that I kind of think of as, like, results guy. And he like yeah. wants to see like what's going to happen. Are we going to win? Or are we going to lose? And if he thinks right. we're going to win, and we get a lead. He's like, "Oh, we're going to win. This is great." And I, I'd be like, right. "You quiet, like quiet. It's not over. Even if I'm yeah. up two breaks, it's not over. You got to chill out." Um, he doesn't get too down if he don't get too down if I'm losing because he knows to be quiet if I'm losing. Mm-hmm. Like you know, we're going to crawl back. But if I'm winning, he's like, "Oh yay, we're going to win." And I'm like, "Shh." quiet see that, that now now that that's something that i think tennis is such a because it's so specialized you've had i've had years and years and years of matches under the belt the 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 overconfidence oh, of dude. like oh we're gonna win we're gonna win that one is a bit easier to suppress for me because okay i think because i played so many matches and i've been around tennis for so long i've seen leads go i've seen people blow leads and when you're sitting on the outside looking in you go, how in the world does he blow that lead? That, that, that's, that, like, that doesn't make sense. How? But, and, but when you get to a certain level where everyone is good, you kind of know a 4-0 lead is only one bad service game by you, and then the other guy plays a good return game because he might hold. He might hold two times, and if I play a loose game, he comes back and plays a good game. Now we're sitting at 4 all. So a lot of times I, w- I would always <clears> – I would always uh, – I find it very interesting of, of – people in the media especially tennis media they would some for some reason they would uh condemn people's well, not people i'll also use an example in serena we'll see many examples of with serena in her prime which is be absolutely just tearing a girl apart and she misses a ball at 5-1 in the second setup 6-2-5-1 she misses a ball and she scolds herself and she goes why are you missing that why do you and she'll have a bit of an outburst 
and people will go, why is she like that? She's, she's dominating. But when you play tennis at a high level, you know the margins can be so slim. You want to get these matches done and dusty. You don't want to leave any hope or any chance because that other person on the other side of the net is a professional tennis player as well. Like, they will come back. They're fighting to come back. So it's not like a sport like basketball or football. You can kind of, you know, run the clock out. It's a sport like you got to win the last point. So I would always I would always kind of find it pretty odd or pretty funny how she would catch, you know, criticism for being intense first point to last because that's what coaches will teach players. You know, we want to be intense first, first point to last. Don't take any points off. She misses a ball of, you know, 5-0 in a set. She's getting mad at herself. It's like, no, she takes that to heart. She does not... She does not want to be one of those comebacks or one of those collapses where we go, how does that happen? Like, there's no way that girl should come back on that. So it's it's a little bit easier for me to handle that because I've seen people, you know, come back from, you know, the brink of defeat. And I was like, I don't want to be on the other side of that. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure if I get up, I'm going to finish it and I'm going to stay focused and locked in. God, I remember a match in the juniors. I, I won the first set. I think I was up two breaks in the second set. And I started thinking about, I wonder what the host family I'm going to stay with tonight, what their house is like. I wonder what they're going to serve for dinner. Yeah. I wonder what the bed is going to be like. Right. And next thing I knew, the guy had, you know, had, had evened up the second set. And now you feel stressed because like, oh, I yeah. should have had this wrapped up. Now I it feel nervous. I should have beat I should you. be at home. That's right. Right. It should be over. And then, you know, and then, and then once you first start feeling tight and stressed like that and you're like mad at yourself and like oh i had a lead and now i lost it and i'm mad about i wish i could go back 10 15 minutes and like oh now you're now you're in a world of now you're in the sunken place (laughs) you can't come back exactly exactly let's talk about your forehand because you got a monster forehand as well um what are some of the technical keys that make your forehand so so huge and so effective uh, for me, I think my, my biggest thing is just making sure I'm making contact with my arm as straight as possible. It's a, it's a bit of a common theme you'll find among some of the best foreigners in the world, ranging from Federer to uh, Nadal to Del Potro. There are a lot of times when they're making contact with the ball in front, their arm is completely straight. To me, I think that gives a little bit of easier power. Now, it seems a bit, to teach it to somebody who's never done it, it's, it's a bit unorthodox. You seem to go, there's no way I'm really going to be hitting the ball like this. But as you go on in time and time, I, and I think I, uh, I started it when I was about 14, 15, and I had to kind of just change my forehand altogether for maybe about six months. And it felt so uncomfortable. I'm like, my arm is so straight. I feel like I can't really do anything. I don't have any control. But once you get used to it, making contact there, the power just becomes so much easier to generate, and then you get good with redirecting and changing direction and, and doing whatever, kind of making the ball do what you want it to do. So my biggest, the only thing that I think about on my forehand, a lot of times is making contact with my arm as completely straight as possible. And then after that, then everything else just kind of takes care of itself. I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about is like, yeah, making that, that full um, straight arm contact, but then when you get a real good whip on the ball with your wrist right at contact, yeah. like that really makes the ball kind of fly off your face. Yeah, that makes the, that definitely gives the ball a little bit of added spin, kind of makes the ball hopefully dance in the air a little bit. But even guys who have whippy forehands, like a doll, like I say, like a, uh, a jack sock, those guys, when they, a lot of times when they're making contact, their arm is fairly straight, and then the whip on the wrist comes at the very end. Right, right, right. Okay, so backhand. What uh, wh- what do you think you're doing well on your backhand? Honestly, I, th- I think 
being able to make it as solid as possible. I think I'm doing a good job of, of not really giving up too many just free and easy points on it where guys can just say, hey, we just go to his back end, he'll miss after the third one. I'm doing a good job of, you know, putting them in the court and also using some added variety, saying, you know what, I'm going to use the slice that hopefully gives me the opportunity to hit a forehand. Um, just kind of mixing, going, switching off between the two, hitting, slicing, doing whatever I got to do. Because at the end of the day, I want to be hitting as many forehands as possible. So if the slice is going to give me the best chance to find a forehand, then hit a couple of them, look for the forehand. But all in all, just making up, making sure that a lot of my errors aren't coming on the backhand side and it's as solid as can be. You're talking about slicing to his forehand so he has to hit up to your forehand? But slicing to his forehand, even slicing to his backhand. A lot of times if you slice to a player's backhand, a slice is a very tough ball to change direction down the line on. It's extremely tough. Now, if you slice it to a guy's, if you slice it to their backhand and they're able to find a forehand, then you're in a little bit of a tricky spot. But what you can do is if you can slice it, you see that they're going to, you know, probably come up and hit a backhand or maybe even slice it back. What I'll do is I'll take a step over to the left kind of early and I'll cheat to say, all right, I'm going to make it really, really hard for you to be able to get into my backhand. So once I hit it, ball bounces, I kind of see what you're going. I'm going to take a step to my left and pretty much just give, if you can redirect that ball down the line where I can't get there, that's too good. But I'm going to depend on you just kind of playing it back cross court and then I'm looking for a forehand. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alameen a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. What do, you, what do you want to do better technically so that you can keep moving up? Yeah. For me, I think, I think the biggest thing for me is getting more comfortable moving forward and coming to net. Um, at 6'7", I'm, I'm not a guy who's like a Medvedev or Zverev, the guys that can just glide from six feet behind the baseline and just play there all day. I kind of want my points to be going more this way and not this way. So um, getting more comfortable to the point where I feel as though I can come in and I make the guys feel so much pressure because I can reach a lot of volleys, I can touch a lot of volleys, and I can put them in places in which the opponent is going to have a hard time coming up with a two-shot pass. A lot of times now, guys have the ability to go two-shot pass on so many balls. If they see a player coming in, 
they don't really go for the pass on the first shot. They're, they're very few. You'll find guys like Novak who can just like, dial up a pass. But for the most part, it's a, it's a combination. It's, you know, if I see this guy coming in, I'm going to play this first one right at their feet, and then I'm going to pass them on the next one. Um, and, and being able to get it to where my first volley is so effective that they can't just depend on uh, coming up, you know, dipping it at my feet or, or putting, it, putting me in an awkward place. I can say, you know what, when I come in, you might actually want to try to go for the passing shot on the first one because if I get a look at a volley, the point's going to be over. It's probably That's probably my biggest thing right now. I mean, with your height, you can close in far faster than everybody else. So I would think right, you'd, right. you know, you're in an aggressive position in front of the service line in, you know, two seconds, far closer than anybody else can get. Right. It's, the, the, one thing, the, the one thing that makes it a little bit tough, though, is for me, because I hit so big, a lot of times is if you hit a big approach, the ball is also going to come back big. So if I'm if I'm two feet inside the baseline, I hit a forehand big down the line and the opponent may be over there or he guesses right. The ball doesn't really have a lot of time to go before it's coming or there's not a lot of time that happens before the ball is coming back to me. Now, if I get there and I roll and create a little bit more space, I can, in theory, get a lot closer. I can I can get far closer to the net because the ball takes time to get over on that side and then they're hitting it back to me. If it's going boom, boom, I might be four feet from where I hit the ball and the ball is already rocking it back in my feet. So that's the thing that makes it difficult is knowing what approach to go for at what time and what location. It's that that's where it kind of can get a little bit tricky. Do you have some of that math going on with the serve? Because you know, at a high level, you know, I mean, you you're you're fooling a lot of guys, you're beating a lot of guys, but like a lot of people can just stick a racket out and block it back and use your power. So the ball's coming back just as fast as you sent it. Yeah, the the, the thing that makes it a little bit tricky about uh, or a little bit easier for me, I feel like on serve is you kind of know what a player's options are based on where they're likely to return. And also, guys have tendencies. So if I'm playing a guy who I know has a very flat backhand and is very comfortable on the backhand side, I might not really want to serve and volley to their backhand because they can kind of bunt and redirect and, and, and catch me in, in awkward places. If I know they have the weaker forehand, or say, for instance, here's a better example, I know they're standing further back behind the baseline. It probably is a bit more effective to serve and volley going wide or to, to use the wide serve and volley occasionally because the ball is going to take a longer time to get to them, and then hopefully I'm closer to the net cutting off angles. Um, another example would be if a guy is, decides uh, he wants to play deep on return, I can say, all right, I know this guy loves angle. Daniil Medvedev is a guy who loves angle on his return. If you serve and volley wide to him, it can be really, really tough. But what you can do is, you can go a kick serve that is a little bit slower, takes longer to get there, gets high, and serve and volley directly up the middle of the court where he has no angle. You can go maybe kick T on the deuce side. He's so far back. He's waiting. He sees you coming in. There's no real angle he can create. But then you have to be able to execute the first volley because if you don't, he's going to probably run it down and come up with another two-shot pass. So there's a little bit of math involved. There's not really one against the best players in the, in the world. There's not really like one tactic that you can say, all right, we're going to do this until the cows come home. Because guys can adjust. Guys can say, okay, if he's going to do this, I'm just going to do this. And, and I, can, I can counter it based on however I feel like I need to. But a lot of times you want to kind of keep them guessing. You want to keep them honest. So you say, you know what, this is a play that I'm going to use sparingly, but I want him to feel me, so I'm going to you know, try this strategy out and see. Because if I try to do the same thing every single time, the match probably won't go too well. Who's the best server on tour? 
Ooh, that's a good question. Best server on tour. Oh, you're giving me just one. I have to go one. <laughs> if if there if two or three are tied, then you can go two or three. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Isner Opelka is tough. You it's tough to you can say John because John John Surf has been so good for so long, and I think John will continue to have a good a good serve. But it's John is also six eleven. Riley's also six eleven. So those guys are they they have. Such like I say, a gift of being able to being able to create angle that so many other guys aren't able to. If I had, I'm gonna throw in, I'm gonna give Isno Pelka top two, but I'm gonna throw in a wild card. I'm gonna say Nick Kyrgios. I've practiced with Nick. Nick's serve is one of the hardest to read. It's 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 a joke because Nick, at the drop of a hat, can pop a 130 up the tee this side, and then pop a 110 slicing wide that the ball just tails away from you, and he can do it from the same toss, or he can throw you a toss that would be typically a kick toss and go flat the other way. He can just mess with you. He can just, you're, you you think you have a read, you think you have a lock and he'll do something that just throws you and he makes it so, so tough. So I'm going to say Isner Pelka are tied for one. And I'm going to say Nick Kyrgios at three probably. It's interesting that you spent so much time with Kyrgios because he's one of my favorite players and you know, he, he's fallen a little bit now, but he was one of the top players in the world um, for a good for first couple of years and super dangerous yeah. to even you know everybody in the top three um huge serve a lot of people have said best serve on tour big forehand looks like with the backhand he's just shoveling it back and waiting till you hit to you but he won't miss it he will not miss it that's the thing he can absorb pace he can redirect and nick will not miss a backhand no, he doesn't. He doesn't. But he doesn't put you in any trouble off the backhand. I just wonder what no, what yeah. makes him so dangerous. Uh, the serve is first and foremost because he can dial up a hold in forty five seconds if he wants to. So that that first and foremost, he makes four first serves. A lot of times you're not making that return. Might be four aces. Might be four returnables. Two aces. Two hundred. Whatever. It's gonna be tough to really neutralize him from the first serve. That's the first thing. Two. He's six four. Moves extremely well. His backhand isn't going to give you any errors. He's just going to, if you go hard to it, be prepared for him to, however hard you hit it, that's going to be how hard it comes back. He maybe tries to redirect every now and then, but you're right. It's not going to be like a, it's not like a, you know, a Warinka backhand where it might just be a winner out of nowhere. He can't, but he typically doesn't. He just bunts it, bunts it, but he's looking for forehands and his forehand is also extremely good. So he just, he's so talented. He's able to, if he says, you know what, I want to, return and come in right now just because I'll do it and he'll, he'll do it and he'll execute it flawlessly. It just, he has so many layers to his game, not just to his personality, but it's like, you never know what you're going to get. You don't know what, what opponent you're going to get. You don't know what game style he's going to have. It just, he keeps you guessing. And the fact that he's holding serve so easily makes you feel so much pressure. Yeah. His, his, he's, he's frustrating to those of us who are his fans. Cause he'll, you know, show out against Nadal, Djokovic, whatever, play an amazing match, sometimes win or take one or two sets off of them, scare the hell out yeah. of them. And then he plays somebody who's 20 in the world or 30 in the world, and he's like, eh, I'm bored. I'm not going to bring it today. I'm like, come, come on, man. Like, you could be number three or four in the world if you just brought it every day, but you just you just don't. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's, yeah it's, it's a very... 
I've heard that that exact same uh, argument from from many many fans who support Nick and, and go all out for him. You know what? He's just the thing is he's just his own guy, and I, th- I think at the end of the day he's he's been pretty open and outspoken about the importance of mental health and his own mental health, and been very vulnerable with the public and, and just understanding that, and I guess trying to educate the public and knowing that you know. Things aren't always as rosy as you when you turn on TV and you see, you know, fourth round Australian Open and you, oh my God, it's amazing. Or, you know, third round Wimbledon, first round U.S. Open. You're like, man, guys living the life. There's, there's a lot of things that tennis players and athletes in general are kind of going through. And we just see it magnified on such a grand scale. It's like, it makes you question or scratch your head. You go, I wonder why he isn't, you know, why I think he's not giving his best effort or, or whatever. But there's a lot of times there, there's some, some, things that are going on behind the scenes that we may not know. So it can be kind of tough to really be able to understand. I think at this point with, with Nick, I, I, when I see him, I, I usually talk, I just talk to him and, and let him know, you know, I support him. I'm behind him. But at the end of the day, that's just pretty much as good of a role as I can do. Just I, sure. I don't really know what he's going through. I can just say, Hey, I'm here for you, man. If you need me. Another of my favorite players of all time is Arthur Ashe. Um, you were in, you were acting in a documentary about Ash called Citizen Ash that's going to come out mm-hmm. next year. I just saw it; it's freaking amazing. Um, have Have you seen the whole doc? I have not seen the whole doc. So I was a uh, I was a part of an, a virtual reality documentary. It's only about ten minutes. Uh, that's now I think showing at the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. And I was able to do that through Rex, Rex Miller, who uh, introduced us. And I think Rex was able to take some of the film there because he was also recording other things as well. Take some of the film there and use it for the Citizen Ash doc. So I'm excited to be able to check it out. It's an extraordinary piece. And it's a really interesting discussion of how Ash, um, I mean, he goes into the tennis, but he goes into a lot of his political development over time and how in the sixties he was more conservative and some Mm -hmm. of the people like Bill Russell who were more aggressive were kind of like, you know, what's the matter with Arthur? He's not coming along with us the way that, you know, me and Jim Brown um, and and Muhammad Ali are. And over time he develops, he grows and he becomes much more outspoken and, and, and publicly political in this really amazing, aggressive way. Um, he's targeting his own issues. He's doing it his own way. Um, but, you know, one of the great political figures of American sports. Is he an inspiration to you in any way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Growing up, I, I have pictured, I had an Afro probably from 7 to 12 that I got because of Arthur Ashe. That was my my inspiration was to be just like Arthur Ashe. So even me doing the, the, uh, the virtual reality documentary, and, and I'm actually excited to see Citizen Ashe, I want to learn even more about him. But I was able to you know, dive into his life and learn a little bit about him um, besides just the fact that he was an incredible tennis player, but just knowing he was an incredible human. Um, it, it provides more of an inspiration just put tennis aside. Yes, I would love to be able to win the U.S. Open. I'd love to be able to win Wimbledon. But just being that type of person who's able to have a legacy and, and like you say, do it his way. He was able to speak out against issues that he saw important, but he did it his way. He didn't, you know, do it in a way in which everyone else was doing it. He said, you know what, I wonder, he was a bit, like you say, fairly conservative at the time. And 
didn't really want to be too far out there, but he still was able to get his message across. And then he ended up, you know, coming into his own and, and being even more outspoken as time went on. I think that's, to me, that, that's a pretty inspirational thing to say. He didn't really give in to peer pressure. He took his time. He was measured. He measured twice before he cut once. He said, you know what, I'm going to make sure I do my due diligence and my research and, and, and I'm going to speak out in a way that I see fit. And then we can kind of go from there. I thought it was incredible. Um, if, if, if I said, okay, 20 bucks, you can see whoever you want to see, who would you be willing to play, pay to see play the game? Ooh, who would I want to, to actually watch play tennis? Yeah. I would have, would have to say Artash. It would have to, just because I, I've been fortunate enough to play and live in a time in which watching three of the all-time greatest on the men's side, I've seen Serena and Venus on the women's side dominate tennis. Like I've, I've been very lucky to be able to see that. But the years before, I'm trying to think from from earlier into, and, and maybe a tail end of like the Sampras Agassi, I still was able to see that. Um, but if I have to really, anyone through the the through history would have to be Arthur. I would love to be able to just kind of see, I I hear a lot about his serve and I hear his serve and volley style. I would love to, especially with my mindset now of knowing how tennis is played now versus how it was then. I love to just kind of sit courtside and like, let me see how big his serve actually was. Like, you know, just kind of critique (laughs) it a little bit. His racket was way heavy. Oh my, my father. A lot lot different than rackets today, boy. Oh my God. My father played with his racket. I could barely lift it when I was a kid. Um, (laughs) Um, who who from the modern era would you be willing to pay to watch? Who from the modern era would I be willing to pay them? I think a lot of it also is the matchup. Who they're playing sure. is a big yeah, thing. Of I've seen a lot of the I've seen a lot of the best, but I would love I would have loved to have seen a Federer Novak Federer Rafa courtside. Like an, an actual in a big time match, I've, I've watched them all on TV. But but you even pointed out earlier, TV doesn't a lot of times do it justice. I wanted to be able to see it up close and personal. Um, oh man, this is tough. This is tough. Any of the 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 Federer Nadal Federer Djokovic matches in a slam, any of those, I would have paid good money to see. I would have loved to have seen. Serena Hennen or Serena Moresmo. I would have loved to have seen that back in the day with a little bit more variety um, coming from Hennen and Moresmo with the oneies and, and seeing how Serena countered that. Um, yeah, I think probably those are probably be my, my top right that I would you know really really enjoy seeing. Um, I have the pleasure now of playing world team tennis next to Kim, Kim Kleisers. So I'm able to see her ball striking is really, really impressive. So maybe a Serena Kleisters match, U.S. Open would have been pretty cool. But I think those are probably uh, – I got one for you. James Blake Nadal, U.S. Open. That's when I would have wanted to see. Blake beat Nadal at the Open, absolutely lighting up forehands. That's one that I'd probably pay good money to see. Epic match. Uh, uh, what makes Serena so great? Um, I think there's a few things, but I think overall she she demands excellence every time she's on the court. I've been able to practice with her a couple of times, and I don't think I've ever been as nervous to hit with another tennis player in my life just because she does not miss a ball. 
and I don't want to miss a ball and I don't want to, you know, I don't want the practice to not be good because of something I'm doing. So I, I think that she demands perfection. She demands excellence. And she's so intentful with every shot she hits in practice. It's, it's, it's remarkable. So I'm thinking if you're doing that every single day in training, when you get on a match court, I, I see how the greatness can just balloon to 23 grand slams. Like it makes sense. It makes sense because you're, you're expecting that level of that quality every single day. You can't help but be great. So you're 150 in the world now, which is an extraordinary achievement. Um, when Djokovic and others started talking about unionizing, there was a lot of talk about like, what about the guy who's 150, you know, who's 200? And like, right. it's hard for him or her to make a living because, you know, most of the money goes to the people at the very top. How is right. it How is it for you? Like, are, is, is it... Is it easy to make a living? Are you? Or is it? Is a is a struggle to keep it going? Like, how is that part of it for you? I think I've been, I've been extremely fortunate. For one, being from the U.S., being under a governing body or a federation that has a Grand Slam makes things a lot, you know, a lot easier in terms of if I, anytime I want to go and train, if I want to go down to the National Training Center in Orlando, I can. I can get coaching there. I can get shit and conditioning. So, in essence, that's an expense that could be taken off my plate. Um, a lot of guys who might be ranked at around 150 might be from countries who do not have that luxury outside of Australia, France, U S and great Britain. Like those guys, I, they, they, I think have a harder time than I do. And I think it's because I've been extremely fortunate. I being from the U S I've been able to get, um, two U S open main draw wild cards. I qualified into the open this past year. I qualified into the Australian open twice so like when you get when you come into those large sums of money kind of get very uh fiscally responsible and you say all right let me make sure this money can stretch as long as possible you know i quite into the open and the prize money even from me turning pro in 2017 has gone up every single year and it, this year the u.s open did a really good job of reallocating money specifically to qualifying they actually took money from the top and then reinvested it back into qualifying which was great yeah a lot of the guys are qualifying i know very thankful for it and that just goes you know tennis is a sport in which the players are incurring their own expenses if you have a coach you got to pay for that coach you got to pay for his travel expenses you gotta if you have a physio you have to pay that weekly salary plus their expenses and 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 it can kind of rack up so being able to you know when you come into those large sums of money at the slams extend it stretch it as long as possible helps but a lot of players, who I said, don't come from those type of countries. When they get into the slams, they have to do well, or they might have other other sponsorships and things that just kind of try to help out. But a lot of times, you'll find guys from 150 to 250 just kind of staying afloat. I think I'm a very unique situation because I've done well at some big events, so I've been able to kind of save and, and stretch things out. But there's definitely a, a sharp disparity between how the prize money is allocated at the top and how it goes down to you know, 150. Like if you're the, probably if you're the number 150 or 200 plumber in the world, you're probably making a very good living. Like in the world, you're probably making a very good living. Not to mention the number 150, 200 lawyer or doctor or any of that. So it's like, man, if I were the 200 best janitor in the world, I'd probably have my own janitorial services, a custodial <laughs> business. I had people here working for me and I'm living a good life. So I think that's what a lot of players are specifically trying to, you know, combat right now. 
But for your for the business of tennis for you, if you can get into the first round of a major, that kind of makes the year finan- right like the this is going to be a good year financially if I can just even get into the first round of of a major. Yeah, it it definitely does, but also adds a lot of pressure. So a lot of times the rest of the weeks, unless you're semiing or finaling or winning challengers, a lot of times you're kind of going into the negative, depending on where the challenges are, um, who, how many people you have traveling with you. A lot of times you're kind of going into the hole in those weeks. So when the slams come around, eyes get a little bit bigger. Guys are spending a little bit extra time in the training room, making sure their body's as good as can be because you really want to peak at that moment. Um, so that, that just kind of leaves you, some guys can thrive in those situations. Other guys might get a little bit nervous and, you know, may not play as well because they know how much, uh, financially is riding on their performance at the slams. Well, there's a big difference between what you get if you lose in the last round of the qualies and if you win that match and make the first round. So I bet there's a tremendous amount of pressure in that match. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, and and but I think a lot of the slams, especially, are trying to reallocate it to where it's not as big of a disparity. Where you know you make last round qualies, you know you're doing, you have enough to sustain you for a while as well. If you make first round qualies, you know they can kind of give you a little bit of boost for a while, and and they're trying to fight that issue and 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 really allow players a little bit more of a, I guess, financial freedom. For you know, if you're able to make a grand slam qualities, you're a professional tennis player. You should be able to make a pretty good living. I think they're trying to fight that, but but it's going to be interesting to see how things continue to go. But what's it going to take to get you top hundred, top fifty? What what do what do, what do we got to do? What do you got to do? Consistency. I think that, that that's the big thing. And a lot of times, like and even I spoke about it a little bit with Nick. It's it, it's there's a lot of mental. The tour mentally can take a toll on you. It can. It, it, it can play week after week after week. Having friends just simply telling you things like, hey, um, you want to go out to this on my birthday in, um, you know, two months. We're going to getting some friends together. When do, I honestly don't even know if I'm going to be there. Can't really promise yet. Uh, maybe I can. Hopefully I can. And so it, it kind of can wane on you when you're on the road for two or three weeks, but a lot of the guys who are able to ascend to top 100 are able to put together those week after week after week after week, big result after big result after big result. They find wind themselves up in the top 100, and then once you, they get there, a lot of times they're able to just kind of sustain by not having to win four or five matches a week, but maybe just, you know, two or three, one or two. It just depends on the tournament, depends on the week. So I think for me it's just going to be a lot just going into next year making sure I'm mentally ready to to go after it every single week that I'm playing a tournament and bring a high level and a high level of consistency every single week. For me, it's the big thing. I think that I've shown that I can compete with guys in the top 100. I can beat guys in the top 100. It's just like, all right, can I do that day in, day out, continue to put in the work? I don't really have a problem putting in the work and training. It's just a lot of times when you get out there on the road, things can kind of just grow stale very fast and the guys were able to kind of mentally still stay engaged the guys you see really doing well in those tournaments yeah i can see how just being alone week after week you don't have any teammates to play off of be like man like this is lonely like even if you're winning three four matches a week like yo this gets lonely yeah it can it can no doubt about that 
So how many people travel with you? Just one. Just one. And and a lot of times uh, I was very fortunate to uh, find who I have. A lot of times players are coming out of pocket and having to, you know, get a coach and maybe even relocate to where that coach lives to be able to train with that specific coach. Or maybe that coach will have to come on the road and do weeks with them. You got to pay that out as well. My situation is very unique because I have a guy who I actually played college tennis with. He was one of my college teammates who's now we're living together and training together and traveling the world together. So it, it's a very, very interesting dynamic. Um, we're actually the same age, but I always felt like he had a very good eye for tennis. I feel like just being able to have a consistent presence there every single day beats out kind of having somebody kind of come in here and there. So that that's kind of what he served. He's, he's, he, he dictates how we're, what we're going to do in practice. He, we come together to talk about, you know, tournament schedules, what are going to be good tournaments to play. And he runs point on, on pretty much all of it. So I was able to find a coach who knows me and also, you know, knows my game extremely well. And, and, and it works out pretty well for the both of us. It's a global sport. There's a, there's a wide array of people, diversity of people who are in the sport. Does race or racism ever sort of enter into the equation or it's like, it's just, you know, we're, we're traveling the world. That doesn't really come up. Oh no, it definitely comes up. It definitely comes up. And now it, it can be a bit, uh, coded, but I, I've definitely, I've experienced it. I've also, again, I think my situation is a bit unique simply because I grew up in Atlanta, which is a predominantly black city. Like, so I, I had that as a luxury and not only that, Atlanta is also one of the largest tennis markets in the U.S. So I grew up around black tennis players my entire life. It was nothing new. Um, so I, a lot of times what you'll find from a lot of, a lot of tennis players, black tennis players, they'll, they'll encounter when they go off to tournaments, you know, getting some extra looks and, and, and feeling as though they were an outcast. My entire junior career, that was pretty much how I felt. There was, when you go to certain tournaments and you know there might be four or five other black kids there. And it's amazing. It, it would, we usually always formed a bond with them. Didn't have to say a word. We would just look up, we would see them. My dad would go and talk to their dad or mom. And next thing you know, I'm hitting with the kid. We're warming up together. We're going out to get lunch together. And it just happens just because there's a sense of familiarity there. There's a sense of, all right, I see you, you see me. Okay. You look around and it's like, we, we, we understand each other. We understand each other. So luckily Atlanta had a good amount of black tennis players who were also playing tournaments. So we all formed a bond. And, and I think after a while, it just became something new, like something very normal. It was, oh, I'm playing this tournament. And Justin's playing this tournament. And Zach's playing this tournament. And Jordan's playing this. Okay. Yeah, we'll probably all go hang out at the tournament. So I never really was the, the one-off. I wasn't the loner. But I was also, like I said, in Atlanta, which I think helped me out a lot. But I, there were still instances, I can remember one instance pretty, pretty vividly of playing a tournament and I made a call against a kid and the kid questioned the call and the dad goes, that's all right, son. Uh, don't worry about it. All black players in the state of Georgia cheat and just said it out loud. Just didn't hesitate, didn't stutter with it. He stood up and he said it proudly. And obviously there were some words exchange my dad was born in 1957 in memphis tennessee so there was obviously from his side some words that were exchanged after that 
And the kid ended up feeling so embarrassed. He just walked off the court. He said, I don't even want to play the match anymore. He the he, kid he was walked up, he quit. The kid quit. He shot he his face when his dad said it completely just he couldn't believe it. And he goes, our dads ended up getting into it. And then he goes, Man, I, I don't even want to. I'm just gonna leave. And he just walked off the court. So I mean Wow. I can I can call, go on my phone and call players right now that I grew up with. I've got hey, tell me tell me one of your stories, and we all have them, you know. Um, now on tour and traveling the world, it's not like that. Uh, at least it hasn't been for me. I can't speak on others, but it hasn't been that direct and outright and just said. But there's there's definitely it's 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 not eradicated. It's still out there. I know some players have alluded to. Maybe the USTA isn't believing in them to the same level because mm-hmm. they're black and they, you know, and, and nobody overtly says it, but they know they know why he's right. getting the extra look and I'm not. Do you see that happening? Right. So with the I was I began my uh I began really interacting with the USTA, like the player development portion probably around twenty sixteen. So I was a sophomore, junior in college was when I really started. I believe when I was young, I maybe 13 or 14, I got to go to a USDA camp where I was in Boca and I got kind of, I don't want to say it was like a tryout, but they, they didn't know who I was. I went down there. I trained for maybe like four or five days and was hoping that, you know, maybe they would want to reach out and bring me back down. I never got the call back. At the same time, I wasn't one of the best kids down there. I played a practice set against or practice match against a kid, and I think I beat like two and three or something. So I never really thought of it from that side of it being a race. I was just like, man, I just I just wasn't as good as those guys. And I was 13. I was very, very raw. I didn't really come into my own until I was probably 19, 20 was when I really started owning my game and, and, and figuring things out. But from when the time that I entered the USDA, I haven't seen it at um, – I've definitely heard stories about how things were in the past. So obviously getting involved with the USDA, my antennas are going to be a little bit up. But from the time that I entered from Martin Blackman, who's uh, the head of player development, things have been very, very good from, again, I'm only speaking from my experiences, from being able to see community outreach, um, even communication, which is something that had been lacking in the past. And players saying they never really heard from the USDA unless they were winning. And but there seems to be a more of an effort, a concerted effort to really make it a lot more inclusive, make everyone feel as though it's their home and the resources are at their disposal anytime they need. So, again, I'm only speaking from my experience. I haven't seen it to be as much of a factor as I've heard it has been in the past. I mean, there's there's a there's a there's a decent number of black men who are having some success. And there seems to be a lot of black women. Who are right. um, you know who are who are really successful in making a go of it um, from you know Coco to Madison to Sloan, obviously Serena and Venus sometimes and Taylor Townsend's out there and um, so there there's a it, what what do you think that is? Uh, Venus and Serena, yeah. to be quite honest, yeah. I, I think it's, yeah. it, for one tennis is one of the best sports for women and for girls. Um, I always say, you know, if I'm lucky enough to have a daughter, she's probably going to play tennis. Uh, the opportunities are so open and, and so available. But also, I, I firmly believe that 
representation matters. And I believe that when a little girl can turn on the TV and see a girl that looks like her winning Grand Slams, when Venus and Serena, it's going to inspire the next generation of girls that look like her to, you know, say, hey, I think I want to do this. There's no, and also to find out she's one of the, you know, wealthiest women in sports, you know, that's a little bit added incentive. I I don't think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's no mystery that, when the little black boys can turn on the TV and see LeBron James and see KD and see, you know, Damian Lillard and see Anthony Davis, Bradley Beal, or they turn on football and they see um, uh, Julio Jones. They see, I'm an Atlanta guy, so I'm going to be partial and see Calvin Ridley. And they see, you know, all at Lamar Jackson. They see players that look like them that come from backgrounds in which they come from. And they see them on TV excelling at the highest level, making millions of dollars. It's probably going to be where little black boys are going to center a lot of their energy towards. I think it's the same sure. thing with women. With the, the surge of black female tennis players, it's like, oh, when you've seen two sisters dominate the game the way that they have, you're going to have a bunch of little black girls that want to dress up as them for Halloween, that want to be them for career day, and they're going to get started in tennis, take tennis lessons, and then boom, you just you've, they've started the pipeline just like that. So one last thing. What's your... What do you think is your superpower that, that, that the thing that you do better than other folks that has led to the success that you've had? Are you saying specifically on the tennis court? Well, you know, I mean, on the tennis court, but also off the tennis court. I mean, like, you know, you've had success in life beyond just your tennis ability, but I, I mean, in tennis, but also just like in life in general, away from the court. I think the biggest overall for me is that I feel is I think I have an ability to relate to a, a lot of different groups of people. Doesn't matter your upbringing or where you're from. Like usually, I have a way to to be able to have a conversation with you, to just be able to relate to you and make you feel comfortable and, and feel as though you know we can we can come together and. and pretty much sit down, have a meal, have a good conversation. And and I can learn from you. I enjoy learning from a lot of different people. I reach out to, I've been fortunate to be able to, to, you know, spend some time on court with James Blake, with James Courier, oh, Jim Courier and, and, and other former players. But I feel as though I, I, I'm very open to saying, Hey James, what do you think about this? Like I'm, I'm, I have no problem with seeking out help, seeking out, you know, asking questions and just being very relatable and personable to a point where I've been very, very lucky that a lot of influential and affluential people have, have you know, seen me and looked out for me and said, you know what, I, I think the kid has something I'm going to, you know, do whatever I can or help him out when he comes and asks. And, and I think I've been very, very lucky in that sense um, of just kind of always just being eager, being around. Patrick Maradoglu is another one who really, really reached, re, um, reaches out to me from time to time, tries to look out for me. And he actually told me that the reason he even started was because when I was, I first got started getting into Grand Slam qualities, Serena's hitting partner, Jameer Jenkins, is like a big brother of mine. So they would usually get to slams about a week early. I would text Jameer. I go, hey, what time are you and Serena practicing? I want to just come and watch. I would go sit. He would tell me the time. I'd be there on time. And I would just sit and I would watch them practice before my own practice. Patrick told me later, he said he took note of that. And from seeing that, he just kind of, he's like, you know what? I, I wanted him to practice with Serena. So I was able to practice with Serena. We were able to hit it off. And he's been able to kind of, you know, 
anytime I need, if I need to call him and ask him, Patrick, what do you about think about this? Should I do this? He invited me to come to his academy to train. I spent a week there before the French Open this year and he just really, really looked out. But I think I just, being that type of, being personable enough to where people can see something in me and want to help me has probably been my biggest saving grace, honestly. And I think that it's kind of just curtailed its way into a lot of my success on court because I have people that I can go to and say, hey, I'm feeling a little you know, not confident. What, what do you suggest? What, what should I do with this? And Jameer, again, has been one who's also like that. Jameer was me before me to some degree. He was from Atlanta, went to college, and then ended up going pro. And, and he's always been a big brother. And anytime I need something, I can go to Jameer and say, hey, I played this person. Can you give me a scouting report? Done and done. He'll give me an hour. He watches some matches. He types up something. He sends it to me. So I think I just have a lot of people behind me. I think I'm just very fortunate and blessed that these people see something in me and see that I'm worth it. And I uh, just hope to continue that. But all in all, I think it's just being eager, being personable, and just pretty much being nice enough to people say, all right, we want to help this kid out. Yo, being nice will get you very far. Now, wait, you talked a little bit. I just want to jump back for one second because you talked about hitting with Serena. Uh-huh. But, but just watching her practice, what did you learn from that? I think I spoke about it earlier when I said she's intentful with every shot she hits in practice. Everything seems like it could be a grand slam title on the line and she's just locked in. And it's, it's, it's quite remarkable that she can do that for such an extended period of time. I, I just find it pretty, pretty mesmerizing that I'm like, man, it's 9 a.m. in Paris. It's 60 degrees and she is locked in on not missing a single ball. Like This is nuts to me. Thanks so much to Chris for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Karp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. <laughs>